Well, my name is Joe Slater, and for many years was a pastor here at Covenant. Got to serve on the staff for about 20 years, and then about 10 years ago, started a campus ministry called Reformed University Fellowship at JMU. Served in that role for 10 years, and just this summer moved into a different role, working on our international mission side with Reformed University Fellowship. So doing that now. Um, And as we look at the next 30, 35 minutes, we're going to spend time in the Bible. Why do we do that? Because God is so kind to show us his face in the scriptures, to show us who he is, how he made this world, how he made us to live and move and and to, to act in this world. But because it's God's word, And God is so much greater than we are, so much higher than we are. We're going to have questions. We're going to have doubts. We're going to struggle to believe some of the things God has to say. And so if that's you, that's pretty normal to the the human existence. Come find me. Come find one of your elders or pastors up here. We'd love to to walk with you through those questions. Don't don't walk through those alone. But find one of us and we'd love to, to talk with you about them. Well, Let's dive in to what we're going to be talking about today. A.W. Tozer once said that the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And it's true, isn't it? Because how you think about God shapes how you think about you. How you think about God determines how you think about the world around you, and it sets the framework for how you understand your purpose in the world. And as we come to the book of Jonah, Jonah is more about God than it is about the character Jonah. Just as the whole of Scripture is more about God than it is about you or me or any other man or woman. And so as we look at Jonah chapter 3 this morning, we'll see a few attributes of God that hopefully, prayerfully, will shape who we are, how we think, and how we live in this world that God has put us in. Before we get to Jonah 3, let's do a a quick review so we know where we've been in in the book of Jonah. God, in chapter 1, called His prophet Jonah to go and take a message to the city of Nineveh, which was a large and important city in Assyria. Jonah rebelled against that call of God and he got on a ship going in the opposite direction. God called Jonah to go east to Nineveh. Jonah got on a ship going west to Tarshish. So God sent a big storm to blow on that ship and Jonah was thrown overboard and God rescued Jonah. God met Jonah in that sea by bringing a great fish to swallow him. And from the belly of the fish, finally Jonah cried out. He cried out to the Lord in repentance. And God heard Jonah's cry. And God commanded that fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. And that's where we pick up the story in Jonah chapter 3. So please stand as we read the Scriptures together. If you haven't already, open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah's a small little book toward the end of the Old Testament. There's no shame in looking at the table of contents if you cannot find it. But this is God's Word. It's for our good and for His glory. So Jonah chapter 3. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. May God bless the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And you may be seated. Maybe they stood out to you, but we're going we're gonna to talk about three attributes from this text this morning. First, God's mercy. Second, God's message. God's message. And then third, God's might. So God's mercy, God's message, and God's might. And as we go through each of those, we're going to talk about how they shape what we believe and how we live. So attribute number one, God's mercy. God's mercy. Did you see the phrase, the second time, in verse 1? The second time. God came to Jonah a second time. Think about it. God didn't have to do this. His call to Jonah in in chapter 1 was clear in these words. Jonah, arise and go and preach to that great city of Nineveh. And Jonah's response was equally as clear. He ran 180 degrees in the other direction. It was outright disobedience and rebellion on Jonah's part. As a prophet and as a follower of God, Jonah failed and he failed miserably. And God would have been perfectly just, perfectly justified in moving on from Jonah at this point. God could have said, well, Jonah had his chance. He's no good to me. Let's go ahead and send Obadiah or Malachi. But God didn't do that. God came to Jonah a second time. This was God's mercy to Jonah. Or or let's fast forward several hundred years. On the eve of the crucifixion, Jesus' closest disciple, Peter, denied Jesus three times. That final denial was in Herod's palace court, and after the denial, Jesus and Peter exchanged a glance across the courtyard, 
And that was their final interaction before Jesus was crucified. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. Can you imagine? Can you imagine his grief and guilt and shame? But do you remember what Jesus did after the resurrection? He came to Peter and he asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Why the three times? Jesus was restoring Peter. Peter denied three times, and Jesus restored three times. For every failure, there was forgiveness. Because God is a God who forgives. God is a God who restores. God is a God who loves to show mercy. He's the God of the second time. And as you hear this brief story of Peter or Jonah, is there any part of you that relates to either of them? Have you ever run from God? Have you ever disobeyed or denied the Lord? Have you heard God's call to do one thing and you've turned and gone 180 degrees in the opposite direction? You don't need to answer that for me. I know the answer. Because I know my own heart. Listen to me. There's hope for you. There's hope for us. There's hope in the God of the second time. There's hope in the mercy of God. Alastair Begg said this, The great reluctance in the book of Jonah is not the reluctance of Jonah to do what God had told him, but rather it is the reluctance of God to leave his servant in the place of dejection and in the place of misery. God is far more reluctant to leave us in the mess of our rebellion than we are reluctant to do what he asks us to do. God is not reluctant with his mercy. Ephesians 2 says he is rich in mercy toward us. The only thing the scriptures tell us God is rich in is right here in Ephesians 2. And it's he is rich in mercy toward us. And then it goes on to say, and that the riches of his grace and kindness toward us are immeasurable. Immeasurable. Can't be calculated. Limitless. You can't plumb the depths of that. Riches of his grace in kindness toward you. For disobedient and rebellious runners like Jonah and like you and me, there is mercy because we have a God of the second time. So God gives mercy, but he also gives us a message. A message. That's attribute number two, God's message. Look again at verse two. God sent Jonah to go and proclaim the message that God would give him. That God would give him. Jonah wasn't called to go and be the man 
in Nineveh. He wasn't sent to be a preacher celebrity there in that city. He wasn't called to dazzle the people with his charisma and oratorical skills. He was sent for one thing, to go and proclaim the message that God had given. He had one job, proclaim the message of God. And as followers of Jesus, we too have a job. We also have a message. And here it is in three words. You ready? Jesus saves sinners. That's our message. Say it with me. Jesus saves sinners. And we're called to go with that message to our neighbors and to the nations. Psalm 105 commands us, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Listen to this. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Listen again. Tell of all His wondrous works. In Matthew 28, you know this. Jesus commissions us. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and in the Holy Spirit. Again, listen. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's our message. And Peter tells us in his epistle, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own position, possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why has God made us his chosen people? Why are we a royal priesthood? Why are we a people for his own possession? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us. Beloved, this is our calling. This is our message. This is our mission. And it's not optional. It is God-given and it's God-commanded. And God promises to use that message to transform hearts and lives. We don't need to change it. We don't need to soften it. We don't need to make it more relevant. We simply need to proclaim it. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, the Word of God is like a lion. It doesn't need defending. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. The Word of God is like a lion. It doesn't need defending. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Which is what Romans 10 tells us, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If anyone's going to believe, it's going to be through the word of Christ. The world doesn't need popular or polished messengers. It needs the life-transforming message that Jesus saves sinners. The power is in the message, not the messenger. As a young believer, I used to think, if only throw in the name of a celebrity or an athlete, Patrick Mahomes or Taylor Swift or you fill in the blank. If only that person would just believe that would impact the world for Christ. Their testimony would have such an influence. But search the Scriptures. That's not how God works. God uses very ordinary people like you and like me to take the very extraordinary message of the gospel to a world in desperate need of it. The messenger is not the point and never has been. 
What are we here? Like 70, 80 years maybe? But this message lives forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. It's all about the message. God called Jonah and God has called us to go and proclaim a message. So are you going? Or are you running in the other direction? Or are you just so comfortable on the couch that you refuse to leave it? A message is only good if it's delivered. So will you go with this glorious message that Jesus saves sinners? Maybe one other thing to think about before we close out this point. Think about this question. Where has God put you? I think this will help set us on a direction for how we can do this. Where has God put you? Think about your, the family he's put you in. Or, or the workplace he's put you in. Or the hobby that you enjoy. Or, or the neighborhood where you live. None of those are by accident. God has put you there in part to share the good news of Jesus in those places. So will you go with that message? For all who follow Jesus, this is our calling. We are ambassadors for Christ, bringing the good news that Jesus saves sinners. So will you arise and go with this message? So we have God's mercy, we have God's message, but we also have God's might. God's might. Did you see the incredible result of this message going out? The people of Nineveh believed God. They believed. God did a mighty work in their hearts. The people turned from their wickedness and they turned to God. And the text says that from the least of them to the greatest of them believed. And God turned from His judgment and showed mercy. And all of this was God's work from start to finish. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells a parable about the kingdom of God being like a farmer who goes out and scatters seed. And after scattering the seed, the farmer sleeps and he rises day after day. And eventually the seed sprouts and grows, though the farmer knows not how. And here's the point of that parable. God is the one who gives the growth. We're just farmers. We take the seed and we scatter it. But we're not the ones to cause the growth. That's God's job. He's the one who makes things grow. Which is really good news. It means that God can use our feeble and frail efforts as messengers to change hearts and lives. The results are not our domain. Our job is simply to go and proclaim. And it's God's job to change hearts. So we scatter the seed and God grows the seed and it takes all the pressure off doesn't it growth doesn't depend on us so fellow farmers of Harrisonburg and Rockingham go and spread the seed and God will bring the growth he promises to 
And I think it's critical that we get this because for most of us, the greatest obstacle to our going as messengers is our failure to believe God's power and might. So how does that unbelief show up in our lives? How does that unbelief manifest itself in our hearts? Well, I'll at least tell you about my heart and maybe you'll be able to relate to some of these. I think a few ways this unbelief comes up in my heart. First is fear. I don't go because I'm fearful. I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of not knowing what to say. I'm afraid of not having all the answers. I'm afraid of consequences, loss of friendship, loss of position, loss of promotion, loss of whatever. I'm afraid. And so I don't go. Another way that unbelief shows up is busyness. My schedule's just too tight. I have no margins for knowing or loving my neighbor. I'm just too busy. Schedule's too full. Or a third way that unbelief shows up, apathy. The good news of the gospel has become mediocre news. I'm really not that enamored with Jesus, so why would I talk about Him? Fear, busyness, apathy. At the root of all of these is unbelief. We don't believe God's power and might, so we stay home and do nothing. Which, if you think about it, is just as rebellious as running from God. In both cases, the the message never gets there. I fear that the picture of Jonah in chapter 1 is a picture of many Christians today. If you were to go back and look at Jonah chapter 1, as, that, as God brought that storm upon Jonah on the ship, you know where Jonah was? Fast asleep in the belly of the boat while the crew was desperately searching for answers. And Jonah had the answers. He was God's prophet. He was God's messenger. But he had fallen asleep on the job. Have we fallen asleep on the job? Have we forgotten God's power to change hearts? And if this is you, if your heart is fearful or hardened by unbelief, listen to me. There's hope for you. Because God has the power to change your heart too. Just ask Him. Repent of your unbelief and ask Him to grow your faith. The world is desperate for hope, for joy, for the good news that Jesus saves sinners. And as Christians, we have all these. So will you trust God that He is mighty to save both you and others? And will you go? God's mercy, God's message, and God's might. I want to wrap back around and talk about God's mercy again. In the first case, we talked about God's mercy to Jonah. I want to talk specifically about God's mercy to the Ninevites as we wind this down. God's mercy to the Ninevites. Nineveh was a a city notorious for its wickedness. But verse 10 tells us that instead of pouring out judgment, God showed mercy. 
Instead of wrath, God gave grace to that city. And why does God do this? Because God loves to show mercy and grace. Romans 5 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is mercy. While we were still sinners, God would send His Son to die for us. Above all else, the story of Jonah is a story of God's mercy. You see it everywhere in these four chapters. God's mercy to Jonah, God's mercy to Nineveh, God's mercy to the sailors. And again, this is really good news for us because we rebel like Jonah. We're just as wicked as Nineveh. We're just as hardened as the sailors, but God is just as merciful to us. Jonah 3 says that from the greatest of them to the least of them believed. God God can save the worst of the worst. He can soften the most hardened of hearts. He can turn back any and all who have run from Him. So will you believe and will you turn to Him? Don't waste another day. Turn back to God through the cross, through the blood of Jesus. Put your faith in Him and you will know God's mercy and grace. One more thought on God's mercy to Nineveh. It's worth noting that this outpouring of God's mercy was on Nineveh. City in Assyria. Nineveh. Not Jerusalem. Not Samaria. Two important Jewish cities. But on Nineveh. Which I think is a glimpse into God's heart for all the nations. God's mercy for all the peoples. The book of Revelation describes a scene in heaven where people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are gathered around the throne worshiping God. And they're there because God has saved and gathered them throughout history. And even now, He's gathering people from those tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. And why is God doing that? Because that's His heart. And if that's God's heart, shouldn't that be our hearts? Shouldn't we care about what God cares about? Shouldn't we care about and for the Syrian and the Salvadoran in our midst? Since God has shown mercy to us, are we not compelled to show that same mercy to others? And this doesn't have to be in big, world-changing ways. Just start in some small, everyday ways right now. Befriend an immigrant. Help with Kids Club or ESL here at the church. Support a missionary. Love the people God has put around you who may not look just like you. Just start in a small way because God's heart is for the nations. Is yours. Well, the book of Jonah in chapter 4 ends rather unsatisfactorily. Jonah reverts back to his petulant self We see in chapter 4, he's angry at God for God's grace to Nineveh. He sulks because God had the nerve to be merciful to this city. He cared more about his comfort in the form of a shade plant than he cared about the hundreds of thousands of souls who didn't know their right hand from their left. Jonah had forgotten God's mercy. And we're just like him, aren't we? 
our hearts are so prone to forget. Have you forgotten God's mercy? Well, there's there's mercy for that. Have you forgotten God's might? Well, there's mercy for that. Have you run from the call to be a messenger? Well, there's mercy for that too. You see, the message that we proclaim that Jesus saves sinners is the very hope that we cling to as we proclaim it. Jesus is our only hope. And so will you come and drink deeply of His mercy today? And then will you go and proclaim it to your neighbors and to the nations? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your mercy to us. We don't deserve it. We could never earn it. But You've given it so freely through Your Son, Jesus. And so we are left to thank You and praise You and worship You. And God, I pray that we would never never get over the, the idea that Jesus saves sinners. Lord, would that mercy shown through the cross of Christ always be in our minds, always be in our hearts, always be on our lips. So Lord, would we perpetually drink at the fountain of your mercy? And then as you fill us with mercy, make us messengers of your mercy to our neighbors and to the nations. Lord, do this for the sake of your glory and do it for our good and the good of so many others. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.